0: Good morning, everyone. Let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning, that you close our ears to any error that I may speak. And Father, as we uh, open this passage on Corinthians, Father, this passage is far too deep to just cover it in one Sunday. And I wish we had many more Sundays to cover this passage Lord, I'm not going to do nearly an an adequate enough job this morning, but I do pray that the verses we cover this morning, uh, Lord, that You would use those verses to speak to people. That You would um, use my inadequate sermon, Father, to minister to people uh, now uh, in the next service, Lord, Uh, but also as they're listening online, Father, that this would touch them. That You would um, that You would speak, and Your Holy Spirit would just work in the lives of those as we unpack. In this passage, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 uh, Corinthians <clears throat> 15 is one of those chair passages. I tell you a lot about chair passages. Chair passages, one of my professors, Knox Chamblin, uh, said, he's uh, he's uh, deceased now, but he was a Pauline professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was one of the finest gentlemen I've ever met. Uh, he was Presbyterian, but he had an affinity for Anglicanism, and so I really liked that about him as well, had good taste. Uh, but he would talk to, uh, about... At Paul, and his he had studied him for 40 years. He knew him inside and out. He taught also on the Gospels. He taught all kinds of things. He taught C.S. Lewis a class, which is where he got his affinity for Anglicanism. And he was just the consummate gentleman and the consummate gentleman professor. Just a joy to know, and everybody who knew him um, really found him joy to know. Now, his, his tests, on the other hand, were not a joy. They were very frustrating, and he broke my brain Uh, many many times over. In fact, uh, after taking his class for three weeks, I did not want to look at a book, think about a book, touch a book, and every time I looked at one, I got a headache. However, one of the things he taught us for extra credit was to memorize chair passages, and I needed all the extra credit I could because as an Anglican, I knew my Gospels. Presbyterians, by the way, were horrible in the Gospels. Anglicans, I found out, were horrible in Paul's letters. We had always read the Gospels. I'd heard the Gospels preached. He and Presbyterians always preached Paul's letters, <coughs> but uh, didn't know the Gospels very well. It's a very interesting thing. So I rocked the Gospels, and all the Presbyterians struggled, the PCA guys. And then I struggled in Paul's letters, and so I took a lot of extra classes in that because I was so embarrassed by that. Uh, and, and they rocked the Paul's letters. And so the chair passages he would give us are these core passages in Scripture where if you memorize them—this is a trick— If you memorize the chair passages instead of your little Sunday school verses, and he would mock us for memorizing Sunday school verses. You know those little verses you put on your thing, the one or two? And I'm not mocking you if you're a new Christian. You need to memorize the Sunday school verses. But if you're a mature Christian, you need to get past memorizing Sunday school verses, and you should be memorizing chunks of Scripture. And so Corinthians chapter 15 is a chunk of Scripture, and you'll find that when you memorize chunks of Scripture, it comes a whole lot easier. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11... Romans uh, three twenty one to 31, uh, these are uh, chunk passages. And, f- and Corinthians chapter 15 is also a core passage. A lot of dense theology, Colossians 1, 9 to 23, a lot of dense theology is in this stuff. So if you memorize it, when you start reading Christian books, you're going to find you've got all these little coat hangers to hang on to this stuff. And I'm not in my sermon yet, sorry. <coughs> this is like the talking about stuff of Anglicanism part. But uh, a lot of dense theology is there, and you can hang your hooks on it. So when you start to read all these books, right? So like uh, Victoria's in one of my Bible studies, um, Nathan and uh, Sarah in one of my Bible studies, and, well, other people are in Bible studies. Some people are in Kelly's Bible studies. But when we're going through these Bible studies or you're reading different theological books, you'll hit all these different verses, and a lot of them will be these chair passages. And instead of skimming over them and, you know, you never read those chair passages, you never read those verses, you'll actually know them. And all of a sudden, you'll see that your world will begin to open up. It'll explode because you know these verses. Your theology will just get exponentially deeper. So always encourage you to do that. Anyway, this passage is one of those, super deep. We're not going to mine into it all today. That's all I'm telling you. And now, let's start the sermon. So now you can start the clock on my sermon. Ignore the all the other time. You can't say Jeff was preaching too long today. Okay. Um, so I was watching an episode of The Crown. How many of you have been watching an episode of The Crown? At home, you can send in to Brenda, she can tell me a little bit later. Uh, Watching the crown, it's not usually something I would watch, but my wife's really into the crown, my daughter was really into the crown, my mom was really into the crown, so I've kind of watched it out of order, because i watched some with my daughter, some with my wife now, and they're really into it. And it so happened, we're coming on Christ the King Day, and the Lord really, I think, I was just watching an episode, Uh, Kelly was watching in bed, I sat down by her, I was watching it, and it turns out that there was a great intro to my sermon. And so the Lord had me watch this. I'm convinced. And so I sit down and I watch The Crown. It's like British royalty and tea and all this other stuff. And it's like a big soap opera, whatever. So, and there's no action in it. So I don't understand why I'm watching it, but whatever. So I'm sitting there watching this thing, and it's the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, right? And we can all relate to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Americans are always fascinated with British royalty except for me. We conquered him. We beat the British. What do I care? But whatever, all right? So everyone else is fascinated with this, but they're going to crown the queen, right? And so the queen is getting crowned, and there's this scene where Edward VIII is a king, and now he abdicated the throne. Does everybody know this? All right? Who doesn't know this? All right, everyone knew this. You all been watching The Crown. I had forgotten this. Because I don't care about British royalty. Okay, so, because we beat them. No, okay, no. So, um, Edward VIII, the, Edward the he abdicated the throne over love, right? How many of you have heard over love? Okay, that's a lot, li- uh, probably a lie. Uh, he did abdicate the throne over love, we think, um, but not really if you type in the history. Anyway, so he can't go to the coronation, okay? And so he's sitting. Well, he could have gone, but he couldn't bring his wife because she was divorced. She was a twice-divorced socialite. Now, why can't you be married to a twice-divorced woman? Well, because the king is the head of the Church of England. And so it's a religious position, just like a bishop. It would be like a bishop can't marry a twice-divorced woman. You can marry her, but you can't be bishop. You could maybe be, well, you probably couldn't be a priest either, but you have to step down. And so people don't understand that. It's a royal position, but it's also a spiritual position. And so, mostly people think that this is why Edward stepped down, but later history shows, "Eh, maybe not. Uh, See, Edward also kind of went to Nazi Germany to visit Hitler, and he did a whole lot of this while he was there. It also turns out that when Edward was talking to his friends, he kind of was hoping that Hitler would win the war so that he could be installed as king, and then he could be the monarch who ruled over England. That was a little disturbing to the Brits. They didn't really like that. He had an affinity for Hitler. Also, he may have given all the secret details away to the, the Allied defenses in Belgium to the Nazis for the Blitzkrieg. Edward wasn't really a good guy. So, hate to quell all that little stuff, but so he may have been forced out for other reasons other than love. But that's a whole aside thing. That tells you something about kings, which I'll tie in a little bit later. Anyway, there's this great scene where he's watching television, and he's watching this lovely scene of Queen Elizabeth, who was a pretty good person. She's been a great queen. And so she is getting crowned, and she's supposed to be a pretty solid Christian. And she's getting crowned, and the archbishop is about to anoint her. And then the, the television clips off. And so here's what is said. I had to go back and clip over this. The, the, the vocabulary is great. I mean, the, uh, the script is great. It says this. Edward goes, And now we come to the anointing of the single, the single most holy, solemn, most sacred of the entire service. As the television cuts off. Television turns off during this scene. See, this was an amazing thing because this is the first televised service ever you commoners we commoners we can actually see the coronation of the queen right this is what the british think now the americans are like whatever okay but the others are like we can see this and the gentleman in the room responds so how come we don't get to see it and the king turns around and says because we are mere mortals now, the cameras are allowed to cut back on again as he begins later on. And he talks and he says, Oils and oaths, orbs and scepters, symbol upon symbol, an unfathomable web of arcane mystery and liturgy, blurring so many lines, no clergyman or historian or lawyer could ever untangle any of it. It's crazy, says a commoner. On the contrary, Edward responds, it's perfectly sane. Who wants transparency? When you can have magic. Who wants prose. When you can have poetry. Put away the veil. And what are you left with. An ordinary young woman. Of modest ability. And little imagination. But wrap her up like this. And anoint her with oil. And hey. Presto. What do you have. A goddess. It's an interesting contrast. With our scripture this morning. And Christ the King Sunday. You see, the crowning of Elizabeth was renowned for making it accessible to the commoner in England. It was full of pomp and circumstance. Everybody was glad to see it, even though it was black and white. But if you think about it, the coming of Jesus was quite the opposite. There was no pomp and circumstance. He was poor. He was in uh, the belly of a teenager and was born in a manger among the animals. This was far a far cry from a king. This was a far cry from the coronation. How in the world is this going to be a king? We don't expect anything like this. The teenager had him out of wedlock. He was hunted by a king to be killed. He was raised by these commoners, lived as a carpenter, and died in disgrace upon a cross. To underscore that, he died in the worst disgrace possible in the Roman Empire. Think of the worst crime that we could think of in our culture, and that's how Jesus died. So what's the worst crime you could think of imaginable, the most disgraceful thing that could happen in your family? That's how Jesus died. So that's hardly the stuff of a king. That's hardly pomp and circumstance. That is hardly the making of a God in our eyes. While our kings and queens in our, and in our country, presidents, in other countries, there's prime ministers, and various other titles are crowned or installed in pomp and circumstance, and they're given enormous, ad, enormous adulation, we think of them as larger than life. And throughout centuries, we've thought of many of our kings as gods. Like Caesar was thought of as a god eventually, well, not early on, but later on. Pharaoh was always thought of as a god. You may not have known that. But even in recent centuries, people have been thought of as gods, as holy. The Japanese emperor was thought of as a god. Even as late as World War II, he was thought of as holy. Stalin actually was thought of as a god by many. The North Korean leaders and dictators are thought of as gods by many in their population. They can hear you no matter what you do. They are gods. And increasingly, in American politics, many are viewing our presidents as achieving somewhat of this status. Don't believe me? How many Americans think the world is saved or lost now that the new president is installed? Or the last president was installed, or the one before that? How many of you have been more invested in the political news over the last year than your Bibles or your faith walks? If you're a Christian and that's true of you, Who's your God? Edward wasn't wrong. Through pomp and ceremony, we love to put our faith in human leaders. We love to mold them into gods, don't we? It's it's natural to us. We love to do it. Why do we love to do that? Why do we love human leaders? Why do we want to wrap them in this stuff? Why do we want to make human gods? And then why do we reject the king of kings? Christ the King Sunday reminds us we don't much love it when a true God molds himself into a human. We want a human molding himself into a false God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So turn with me to your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. You can look on the screens as well. I always encourage you to bring your Bibles. But we read this. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of to God and the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in First Corinthians, Paul has spent most of the time teaching about unity to a divided church. And this church, remember, was fighting about everything. If you could fight about it, first Corinthians did, right? They're the Corinthians, not first Corinthians, but the Corinthians did. The church of Corinth fought about everything. Really, it was over spiritual. I'm more spiritual than you. You're more spiritual than me. If you have this, if you follow this teacher, if you follow that teacher. I read this book. I read that book. I went to this theological. I'm of this theological persuasion. I did that. I did this. I have this spiritual gift. I have that spiritual gift. I have green eyes. I have blue eyes. I have whatever. I did this. This is the thing I did for whatever it was. They fought over it. Paul's talking about unity. At the end, he's kind of tired of talking about unity. And he begins to instruct them about who Jesus is. He begins to instruct them and he tells them in 1 Corinthians 15 about the core of the gospel. Now he talks about the second coming, which we talked about a little bit and we're going to talk about more in Advent. However, here he couches the second coming and really the nature of the gospel. He's talking about the gospel, who Jesus is, and what it's going to happen at the second coming. But really, theologically, he's grounding the second coming. And that's what's happening in our passage Today. And it's an enormously thick passage. It has a ton to say to us. So it's not about cool prophecies. It's where G- who Jesus is and where he fits in the scheme of things. So you see, when Jesus first came on the scene, he came as a lowly human. We've learned about that, who lived as a wandering preacher in Judea. He preaches to Jews, he preaches to Gentiles, and was put to death in a humiliating fashion according to that day. Now, this was a problem to many folks in the Roman and the Greco world. And they would naturally wonder about the nature of Jesus and his return. Why? Because they had a pantheon of gods, and the gods would often make themselves human, but their gods would toy with us. They would mess with us. Their gods were jealous and envious. They didn't really love people. They used people, right? So Zeus, often like, slept with people and their female gods slept with people and then some of their female gods would like mess with men and then kill them Uh, they and other gods were like partying gods i mean they were just kind of gods that did all kinds of crazy things and then if they died it was only a fake death they didn't really actually die and then they would go and do their thing but here you have someone who's supposedly a god who is born as a baby that doesn't happen Lives as a human, that doesn't happen. Dies for our sins, what in the world is that? And then rises again, what in the world is that? Did, none of this made sense to them. And so they would naturally begin to wonder, who is this Jesus, and when's he going to come again, and what is this deity power? And so in their mythologies, they confuse a lot of Paul's teachings. We read about this in Acts fourteen eight 8-12, for instance. Now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked, and he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had the faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and sang in Lyconian, The gods have come down on us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So you see what happens here? They even bring the high priest of Zeus to come sacrifice to Barnabas. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand who the Father is. And when they're seeing these miracles, they're naturally assuming that these guys must be the Greek gods. They're totally confusing all of this. And so who is Jesus? And Corinth is right in the middle of all this, and so Paul is trying to instruct them about who this Jesus is And so in 1 Corinthians 15, this chair passage full of deep theology, he's using this deep theology to explain it, which is why Peter says the teachings of Paul are hard, which is why a lot of in my former church people didn't want to learn it because it it hurt our heads. And a lot of Christians get lazy. We don't want to memorize this stuff because it hurts our heads, but we've got to. We've got to push ourselves. We've got to learn this stuff. They were inclined to think of Jesus as a God who became human and was still God, died on behalf of our sins and ascended into heaven. No. Maybe he was a God who didn't die. He couldn't be human. That's ridiculous. And he couldn't really die for our sins. That didn't happen. That's not the kind of thing they did. So what were they? And they were used to kings like Caesar Greek kings and pharaohs they'd heard about. They'd heard about all these kinds of kings that were full of pomp and circumstance, and then they died. They were used to that, but Jesus wasn't that either, was he? So how in the world can he be a god if he's not like Zeus and Hermes, but then he's also not like Caesar or Alexander the Great? So what kind of god is this? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered what kind of God is this? How in the world is he a king? He's not a mortal wrapped in pomp and ceremony, he's not wrapped in poetry. So, Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 15 where he fits. He came to us as a sacrificial lamb, but that's not how he'll return. First Corinthians 15 24 to 26 and he's telling the Corinthians do not confuse Jesus as weak do not confuse him as simply the lamb he came to us as the lamb he's going to return to us as something much greater. 1 Corinthians 15:24 to 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ's kingship extends until the end when he hands all things over to the Father. But that handing of all things over to the Father comes after he has conquered all of God's enemies, including sin and death. So those, of course, are major forces that drive all the misery of our time and all the times before us. But what you're reading here is Christ will conquer all those who serve those forces as well. So Christ is not only, he came in this, not well, lack of pomp and circumstance, he's going to return in more pomp and circumstance than any Caesar, any Pharaoh, any king or queen of England. It's not going to be make-believe, it's going to be real pomp and circumstance. And that's what Paul is showing us. And that's important because the Corinthians are undergoing persecution like the rest of the church and like we'll undergo as well in other times. We won't be forever without persecution. Every culture will undergo it, even in the U.S. And Christians have to be reminded of this because we want to fear our government. We want to fear those who are persecuting us. And we want to fear them because they look to us like real kings. But Paul is reminding us that they are full of pomp and circumstance. If you're facing Caesar or Pharaoh who's persecuting us, or Stalin or Mao, if you're facing our current government, if you're facing any current government, I mean our in general government, whatever it is, they look ferocious to you because they're huge. But Paul's reminding them that they aren't huge. God is huge. Don't lose your way because there is a consequence for that. Jesus isn't poetry wrapped up in a veil, anointed with oil. He's the real deal. The reason we don't recognize him as king is explained by Paul in Romans 1, 19 to 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, we want a God that looks like us, Paul says, smells like us, acts like us, only richer and better and dressed with and, have per- and having perfect speech. Every God that we make, that we make, is after our own likeness. The Greek pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon, The Roman pantheon, South American pantheon, and the modern American pantheon. Yes, we have our own gods. They might be in Hollywood, it might be money, it might be power, it might be politics, whatever it is, it's always in our own image. We might call them gods, we might call it dollar bills, we might call it something else. But it's always in our own image. And we always want to bow down to serve it. And that's what Paul is saying. In some cultures, these kings wore a crown and some silk robes. And ours, a suit and tie or a pantsuit. But here's the thing. All the other kings, and we'll end with this, are pretenders compared to the true king. Only of one king is it said in Acts four eleven to 12 by Peter... This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul builds on the teaching in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ All shall be made alive. And this is what makes his kingship so different than all the others. Some rule as best they can. Some fool us and rule for their own glory. Some rule us because they inherited power. Some have no idea how to rule. But at the end of the day, they are all badly flawed. And we're all fools if they think, if we think that they're going to save us hand your freedom over to a sinful, flawed human being and think that they're going to save you is the height of foolishness. Which person out there can run your life better than you can? But to hand your freedom over to the God of the universe who created you and can grant you eternal life, which do you think is the wiser choice? So this morning, I urge you to make your call. Give your life to a pretender or give your life to Christ the King. If you find yourself here this morning or out in television land and you haven't given your life to Christ the King, I encourage you to pray this morning to do that or to go with our prayer team to do that or to contact us and we'll pray with you to do that. And if you find yourself as a Christian who's been living, like not committed to Christ the King, I encourage you to recommit this morning. If you find yourself living for other things, take this opportunity to recommit to Jesus. Do it with our prayer team. You can come up and pray with the clergy. You can call us this week. You can do it at home. It's a simple prayer. Turning from your sin, repenting of your sin, giving your life to Jesus, or if you're a Christian, repenting from what you've done and committing your life to God, I want to follow.